From Central Sauce and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Sauce, a celebration of the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. My name is Mickey Hellerbeck, and I'll be hosting this episode along with Soma Ghosh and Joshima Wadera. Uh, Soma, do you want to introduce yourself to the people as it is your introductory In Search of Sauce episode? It is. I'm new here. Um, yeah, I'm Soma Ghosh. I am the editor of The Demented Goddess, um, polysexual, multi-ethnic, many-gendered arts magazine, putting together um, top and emerging artists um, across the arts and particularly music. Um, we've been discovering some some great uh, great new sounds uh, this year in particular. And I'm a music, film, books and cultural critic. Um, you can find most of my essays, uh, most of my longer features on music and film at The Quietus, um, also at The Irish Times, um, the Independent and elsewhere. Yes, yes, awesome. We're we're hyped to have you be a part of the podcast, and I'm 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 excited personally to talk through these pieces with you. Um, Jeshima, what up? Hello, what's going on? Um, I'm really excited to have Soma here. I think it's going to be one of my favorite podcast episodes. I'm gonna I'm gonna put that energy out there. I'm Jeshima. I lead music at browngirlmagazine.com and co-host the podcast here at Central Sauce, amongst many other musical things. Yeah, and again, uh, I'm Mickey Hellerback, writer at Central Sauce. I don't think I said that before, and also, of course, co-host of this podcast. Um, I've had a few pieces uh, come out recently that I guess I'd like to promote a little bit, too. I did, uh, I've done two recent profiles, one of Fouché um, and one of Nyomza, uh kind of set around their most recent projects. Uh, Fouché, her debut, and Nyomza, her third seven-track EP. So definitely check those out. Those are both on Euphoria magazine. Um, and yeah, uh, let's let's start talking about these pieces, which we'll get into a little later, and then we'll do a little intro thing. Um, the first one we're going to talk about, uh, which is Jushima's piece that she brought, which is Untangling MF Doom's Lifelong Struggle with the U.S. Immigration System, and that's by Noah Yu for Pitchfork. Uh, and then we're going to get into Soma's piece, which is The Fear Goes On, Deed and Blunt's Black Metal 2 for the Quietest. Um, and then mine is Home is Where My Record Collection Is, and that's by Erica Campbell, and that's for Apartment Therapy. But before we take a deep dive into these pieces, as we do often on the podcast, we're going to do a little round of what have you been listening to. So Soma, you want to start us off what have you been listening to that has connected with you yeah so obviously it's an interesting cusp time it just has been an interesting cusp time since the pandemic was upon us um, and for me uh, joy crooks has recently released a, um, a song i shared with you guys uh, feet don't fail me now and for me it's the anti-protest protest song of now. Um, I remember recently reading uh, Malala um, in Vogue, which is unusual for me to be reading it, um, that uh, basically how activism isn't about uh, retweets, 
um, there's a sort of disproportionate sense, however, of um, panic and uh, sort of tribal um, one-upmanship sometimes that we know all about that. And this song particularly, um, oh, it's, it's like, it's pained, it's fucked up, but it's so sweet as well. Um, it's got an earthy bass line, Motown orchestration, and a voice like Amy Winehouse took Sade for a much needed pint and a fag in the loos, probably a lion and a cry. Um, so yeah, these kind of lyrics about mirror skies and retweeting picket signs, mining the paranoia and hypocrisy that some of us feel about making any meaningful protest um, as the collective pain goes on and as shit doesn't get sorted and there's just a lot of noise about going out there and back to normality. Um, and yet here are these, you know, injustices being perpetrated everywhere um, so I think you know, being able to, being able to address um, paranoia and hypocrisy so sweetly with such a, with such a swing and with such sweetness, uh, it's a pretty remarkable achievement. Mm. That uh, the kind of like one upmanship thing that you kind of touched on is is really interesting with that, and it makes me think of um, a piece I read recently by one of our favorite writers here at the podcast, Andre G for Complex where he broke down kind of what, however you want to enter into this social media sphere with whatever rhetoric you want to have, these are the specific platforms where it would be best for you to exist. And the one that like really struck me with risk of sounding kind of like an old head of like these kids on social media of, of Twitter, where it's just kind of this like very, if you want to kind of express yourself in these very uh, black or white statements that are just these one like, this is what I have to say about this and now I'm out. Um, which like leaves very little space and, you know, because I'm, and we talked pre recording kind of about the pandemic and like the separation from actual, you know, person to person, but it, it just leaves very little space for the kind of intricacies of like whatever your opinion may be for anything. So, um, yeah, totally. And, and I think that, sorry, no, go for um, it. so I was just going to say that I, I, uh, I think that's so true. And I think what's been really interesting in this period, however, is how many artists have been locked up um, writing and creating um, and not just talking about those uh, kind of slightly dodgily, um, mournful, yet optimistic, <laughs> endless um, releases from people's bedrooms, um, but more the, the energetic uh, new music that people have had time and space to explore. Um, so another new track that I've really enjoyed has been Clay Pigeon by Binky. Um, and when I get to uh, talking about Eden Tizard's uh, piece on Dean Blunt, um, that's another cross-genre artist. Um, and that's really my bag personally. I like music that has um, edge, texture, uh, drama, um, breadth, uh, <laughs> and, and wit. Um, so in, in Clay Pigeon, um, check it out. It mixes hip hop, <laughs> dance, punk. Um, you come for the hooks, you stay for the distorted grunge. And if you like Dirty Mind era Prince, uh, Clash and The Strokes, which um, both you and I uh, heard in it, Mickey, um, it's, it's one for you. So it's, it's, it's been so interesting to uh, actually see this kind of, this, this energetic new music almost pushing back on, in some ways, this this narrow um, social media 
space. I mentioned social media because that's been the primary um, way that we've all been interfacing. Yeah, definitely. I think when you sent me that one, I also sent a track back by Terry Presume, who gives me a very similar feeling. Oh, uh, I love but, that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Joshima, what have you been listening to? I also love Joy Crux, and I think that um, it's always fascinating to watch artists come into their identity in a way that feels good to them, while the public is trying to hold them accountable for how they represent the public and themselves and I think because of her heritage she's held to that constantly from two communities that have a really rich history of discourse and activism and rebellion um and and so I love seeing it come through in art and in songs like that that have a lot of softness about something that is rarely talked about with nuance in a time where there's just so much dissonance because there isn't physicality in the same way. So I love her, but what have I been listening to? I've been listening to a lot of Story. Story is an artist we had as a part of our first digital festival called Sauce Fest a few months ago. And I played Fuck Me Good in an Uber at four in the morning last night, so... I really like this song. Um, another song I've been loving a lot is called Thug Life by a Punjabi artist named Jasmine Sandless. But she does this with a lot of her music much earlier on in her career before it became a more commercial dance period for her, where she creates these beautiful songs with Punjabi folk vocals, but the production is this incredibly slightly off-putting to the ear because you're not sure where it's gonna go. Jazzy, bluesy, painful, yearning music. And this felt like reminiscent of that portion of her early discography that I really enjoyed. Um, and it's produced by who someone I think is one of the world's greatest violinists of all time, and his name is Raginder. That's R-A-A-G-I-N-D-E-R for all the listeners. Um, everyone should go check him out. He's, he's incredible. And all of his songs are also what I've been listening to. And many of them are instrumentals only. So, so that, that's, what, that's what's been on my playlist. Totally. I've definitely been driven to uh, more instrumental music than I've been accustomed to recently because I feel like what I've been listening to has been like so overwhelming with new music and I mean as I've talked about on on the podcast before I definitely come from a place of of you know music discovery is kind of what led me into being a music writer on some level so like I still to this day whenever the Friday drops happen I go really hard into it and I felt really overwhelmed <laughs> this past Friday with how many actual releases that I actually really rocked with came out so that I, I definitely went back to this kind of um, uh, duet uh, jazz uh, group that I that I like called Bremer slash McCoy. Uh, I believe they're out of Switzerland um, as kind of just to separate from the, the onslaught of new releases that I was taking into. But that said, again, what I've been listening to is the incredible new releases that have come out. Uh, particularly, I, I really uh, liked Salt's new release, Nine. Um, they released two incredible projects uh, last year, which got uh, heavily critically praised. Um, there's some, for some reason, and I, you know, I just started really listening to it, but this Nine record is really connecting with me front to back more than even any of the other ones 
Um, and I think it's the progression of it. Um, Cleo Soul's voice also is just like always connects with me in a crazy way. Um, she's so talented in the little, little Sims song, which Charlie, our editor, uh, is the biggest Little Sims fan alive. Uh, but that that album really kind of immediately, as much as I was trying to listen to everything, I ran that back once. Uh, and I also really love Cautious Clay's new album, Deadpan Love, which I reviewed for Euphoria too. Um, it's almost like an album of like snippets a little bit. It's a bunch of two minute songs, but they all really connect together pretty beautifully. Um, at risk of time, I think it's it's about time we move directly into our our first piece, um, which I'm I'm very excited to talk about. And uh, Joshima, why don't you go for it and get us popping? Yeah. So this piece is called Untangling MF Dooms, Lifelong Struggle with the U.S. Immigration System by Noah Yu. I hope I'm pronouncing your last name correctly. But I chose this piece because the Central Sauce folks were talking about it in a, in a Twitter thread, and I'm very glad I stumbled upon it. But I think that's something that happens, at least in music in America, is there's always segmentation of bodies, lifestyles, a lot of objectification for personal choices, but very, very, very little to none dialogue on the actual globalization of hip hop, whether it's through touring and the music traveling or in actual person status in different countries. And I think specifically in America, because I can't speak for other places, um, there's, there's large parts of America that have no idea what immigrants from what regions experience what experiences. It's very, very one note, their knowledge on immigration and the way that our system works. So I thought this piece did a great job of explaining, but not making his journey or peril with immigration become his career point or the climax in this piece, which I enjoyed because we recently spoke to Danielle Smith and we talked about how Every time you talk to a woman identifying artist, it's always about her baby daddies or her apparel choices or what she's talking about, as opposed to the fact that she likely is an incredibly successful artist and deserves to be talking about her art. So I love that this piece maintained his integrity, but was able to speak about the many, many nuances of broken systems. Um, so I'm curious on everyone's thoughts before I dive into my favorite points. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Uh, I connect with that entirely. That's that's the big thing that I took away, which is that you know, regardless of the situation, Doom specifically stayed stayed true to his artistry, and I think Noah Yu really did a beautiful job of weaving in his musical accomplishments throughout this kind of never ending. I mean, literally never ending process. Um, because Doom was kind of met with a bit of a conundrum, you, you realize kind of while reading this, which is, am I going to kind of lose track of my sanity just trying to deep dive into trying to get, get what I need to get my Im immigration status handled? Or is the, the system so much of a conundrum and of chance that I kind of on some level have to leave it up as much as I'm kind of tactfully trying to address it, leave it up to a little bit of fate and really hone my energy and focus it on my creative process and not let this get in the way, which I think was a really um, kind of beautiful, and you really did a good job of kind of saying this, 
lesson in priorities in a weird way um, where, you know, systems, regardless of what they are and immigration, particularly are, are in place for, for so many years that like actually as one human kind of attacking them and, and getting what you need out of them is so difficult that you, you can't let it affect what truly brings you your, your happiness and your fulfillment through your art. Um, so as much of, as this was like a technical piece into the dive into dooms, you know, struggles with immigration, it was so much of a dive into the, the beauty of his existence, even though he had to deal with it. Um, yeah. So I, I connected with what, how you broke it down to Joshua for sure. Soma, what'd you think? Yeah. Um, I mean, coming back to a couple of points you raised there, Joshua, I think, um, it's a it's an interesting piece in that it's essentially um, a a news feature um, that reflects, um, but as you're saying, Mickey um, reflects some of the inconsistencies and um, sort of pernicious categories that are just embedded into uh, the U.S. immigration system. So um, it's interesting how the writer has managed to pull out uh, the difficulties of um, Doom's journey, which I think Joshima will probably tell us about and explain the, explain the story. Um, she'll get to that. Um, but for example, just a line like um, that same year, the federal government created a record of Dumil as a deportable alien um, you know, at the time. Um, he's just under four years old and he's being um, stamped, bundled away, ready uh, to be um, deported. Um, so that, you know, that, 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 that struck me. Um, and more broadly, I think uh, what's, what strikes me about um, this story and uh, reading about it now is how the the rise of nationalism, xenophobia um, has affected, uh, well, as we know, in the States um, and also in the UK with Brexit um, and uh, Europe um, and elsewhere as well, uh, India, for example. Um, it's so many um, sensitivities and uh, ways of um, keeping people out. Um, I know that the that the musicians um, union in the UK have been lobbying for a musician passport, uh, so to speak, where basically the guys would, you know, you'd, you'd get a passport and it would last for about two years and it would give you freedom of movement, essentially, across Europe. Um, and they have made some concessions, but that, that's, that, that's, that's not going to happen. Um, and so we have, we're facing a situation where um, uh, we all know that for many artists, they make their money through touring. Um, the way that streaming is handled uh, means that they are often forced to tour in order to make their music and in order to survive. Um, yet this means of livelihood is being attacked by forces which are obviously totally beyond their control. So I think it's, a, I think it's an interesting um, article to explore in terms of those ideas of uh, belonging and um, right to play 
um, and right to, to be who you are. Yeah, absolutely. I think that in, in the rise of nationalism in a lot of different countries, media and entertainers sit in this strange space where now more than ever, I think, large masses of the world are ignorant to the idea that fame does not always equate to access in this way. And I think that it equates to access in many, many, many ways, socioeconomic access, access to protection, access to agency. But the things you lose very quickly are privacy and grace. And by grace, I mean the grace to navigate a process. MF Doom's time was a little bit different, but could you imagine an artist at that level of fame, which this happens all the time, there are many currently, that cannot tour, cannot go to shows in the country that they consider theirs where they have established their career. But like the entertainment attorney Xavier says in the piece, he's given so much to the culture here and around the world. And so for that to be such a large contribution that helps define a scene or a time in a certain country or place. And in reality, that person is constantly deprived of their actual identity to the place. It's a jarring thing to think about. And I think it's an important one because the world doesn't know because of how music travels now, especially for the folks that will discover his music for generations to come. We've talked about this on previous episodes, both immigration and artist visas. And we have an entire series and segment on MF Doom and their discography and their career. So if, if the listeners want to check that out for more of the musicality, I think that that's a really great one to read and listen to. But I, I do think there's something to be said about the conversations we have and don't have. And a lot of this is also likely for legal reasons and not wanting to draw attention to the 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 problem happening in regards to his immigration status but i think noah did a wonderful job of it being tasteful semi reporting but he also described what happened as what happened i think when there's folks on the other side of things that are perhaps pro immigration or i mean pro immigration regulation and perhaps have different views than than some of us hold it's this grave exaggeration of what is happening, right? Someone is this revolting criminal and X, Y, Z happens. And I think the way we talk about immigration and crime, specifically in America and punishment is terrible, segmented at best, but lacks tact and reality, right? So I think there's a bit where Noah talks about he would then attempt to enter the U.S. one more time and would be denied access. That is what is happening. Someone is going to the airport, they are showing their passport, they are trying to get into a country, and they are denied access. That is the situation that took place, right? So I I have a lot of respect for it being presented like that in context. Yeah, and one of those presentations that... The one that really hit home the most for me where Noah, without getting into too much kind of legalese detail that he goes into, where Doom was present, there was a cutoff where he would have been uh, allowed citizenship based on the, the time that he had been in the U.S. There was like an actual legal cutoff and he just had to present proof basically that he was in the U.S. before 1972 where he was. He was in Long Beach, New York but he was a kid, obviously, so he didn't have any like really serious legal documents, but he had like stuff from his school 
that proved that he was, you know, in the United States and living and being educated in the United States. Um, and so he presented that to to the immigration people and they sent back asking for more legal documents, which, of course, he didn't have any version of because he wasn't an adult. And then that just spiraled into a continual them asking for documents, him not having them and still being denied access. That was one of those situations where it was like, oh, even with the actual laws backing up the fact that you should be granted citizenship, you there's still all of these mini loopholes that are created in order to deny you access, which goes back to what Soma was talking about earlier. And I thought Noah, again, presented that very much like in the step-by-step process so you could kind of feel and understand exactly what that process must have felt like for doom i think it's a it's a reality for many 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 children of immigrants and immigrants in other countries that you live on borrowed time and the implications of other decisions that are constantly changing in in a system um and your access to knowledge at any given point of what's happening in that system could define your past and your present and so how does a four-year-old prove that they were legally here? I don't know. I think that was one of the, um, one of the aspects of the whole story um, that was unusual, given how little we actually know um, about Doom. Um, so born Daniel DeMille um, in the UK, um, living the rest of his life in the US. Um, and when you think of this great figure, um, frequently called uh, a a writer's writer, um, the MC's MC, um, wearing his mask and the the games that he played where um, he would uh, send doom posters um, instead of himself. He's a fascinating figure in terms of now you see him, now you don't. Um, And that's juxtaposed with this really spiky, um, well, spiky crisp uh, rhyme scheme where he'd go in on the on the last syllable um, and make his rhymes uh, land in that way and yet at the same time um, in uh, in a song like home sweet home with master ace uh, he can you know he just rolls that into um, so much warmth um, and so I think you know there's a line where Noah says uh, Another set of documents contain glimpses of Demille as a child, and the whole piece tries to um, layer itself uh, through, you know, throughout, as Joshua was saying, you know, kind of sticking with the documents. But what's interesting for the reader is what it has, you know, these little glimpses um, into this masked, in every way, character. That feels good. What you just said feels really good. Um, it's true. The juxtaposition of his many identities and how he chose to present them and while trying to justify his own. But I think this is a good this is a good moment to jump to the next piece. about to say that I think that's a very good good transition about you know kind of identity and how that translates in the music to this uh, really great piece from the quietest by Eden Tizard so 
Selma, do you want to go for it? Yeah, sure. Um, so sorry, guys, for uh, picking a piece from the quietus. <laughs> for whom I write. Hey, I put on for the home team. Yeah, uh, I mean, I will try not to pimp us on every every podcast that I appear, um, but I can't promise. Um, I was drawn. I mean, there you know there are a few pieces that uh, that that really caught my eye um, in the past uh, in the past few weeks. Um, it's interesting that um, that we've just been talking about uh, the the idea of the masked enigma and how you create a persona. Um, because one of the other pieces that uh, caught my eye um, was uh, Alex Ross in the New Yorker um, talking about a pre-Renaissance, um, in fact, a Renaissance uh, figure um, of many names who established uh, the, the kind of the beginning of, of, of a composer getting paid uh, for their work. So it's interesting as these dilemmas have been going on for over 500 years. But in the end, um, uh, having having been... Uh, having flirted with a number of pieces, I just knew when I read this, um, I was unlikely to find something as freewheeling, dense and acute as uh, what Eden Tizard um, has to say about the ever slippery uh, Dean Blunt um, and the new work uh, Black Metal 2. Um, so uh, just to introduce uh, Blunt, um, a self-made enigma, um, an alchemist of hip-hop and indie lo-fi. Um, he's variously and really commonly labelled by the music press as a conceptual artist, as a prankster, um, as a maker of art pop. Um, he perplexes and thrills and frustrates by never playing by the rules. Um, there, was a, there was a cult now scrapped Twitter account uh, with We Transfer links. So in many ways, it's, he's an interesting counterpart um, to Doom because uh, he's like a, a ghost of, uh, in some ways, of brilliant fragments. Um, so what does he actually sound like? Um, I mean, you know, this previous releases uh, have been characterised by, as I said, sort of blending hip-hop and lo-fi indie rock, um, trebly acoustic uh, electric guitars, and interwoven often with fairy-like, almost like quite Celtic um, female vocals, um, which appear again in uh, in the um, in the album that um, Eden's uh, writing about um, in this in this piece. Um, and overall, uh, his work is sort of drearily consoling. He's been called an Afro-pessimist, but I think he just rejects all of those titles. But there's most definitely this perfume of, of pessimism. Um, he's a Gnostic curmudgeon uh, who can't even be bothered to be defiantly bothered about the usual rap bombast, even when he's taking a shot at it. So he's done that before with song titles referencing 50 Cents and Fetty Wap. Um, that was Petty Wap. Um, there's another great song with guitars, which you don't expect when talking about rap. Um, and then there was a track, Chancer, where he got uh, ASAP Rocky uh, to hype him, hype him, yelling about blunts. Um, and then he just comes in um, with the voice that we that we hear on, on Black Metal 2, um, which is pretty much like, uh, it's kind of weed dehydrated at the back of the Uber, maybe like 5am voice, um, <laughs> and just cutting his own hype dead uh, by saying, I ain't, ever, I ain't even going to try that hard. Um, 
so and and Eden Eden um, addresses um, all of that um, in this piece, which my only complaint would be it is it is as short um, as the work that Dean Blunt has released. It's it's just twenty three minutes. Um, the new album, um, but it's quite an experience. I'm just going to uh, I'm just going to take you through um, just the first just the first paragraph, so you can just see uh, maybe hear um, why this grabbed me and, and how this grabbed me. Yeah, black metal too could be longer. When you wait seven years for a follow up, you hope it be longer than twenty three minutes. Not only that, but Dean Blunt announced it over three years ago. And given the impromptu, blemish-heavy sound of his, it's unlikely he spent the time ironing out every crease of this extra-small garment. So there's this conversational opening, <laughs> this deceptively casual tone of voice. Um, and we were just talking about the, the, uh, the burden that music journalists, often, that, we, that we writers often have um, uh, in the piece we've just been, just, just been talking about with, uh, with Doom of, um, of you know, trying, to get, trying to get the facts Trying to get the facts in, trying to kind of ground um, uh, the piece in helping the reader um, know um, who are we talking about um, and what are we talking about, and at the same time, what's the writer's vision. Um, so we get all of that here. I mean, those facts are just flicked into the conversation, you know, like so many, so many flicks of so many flicks of a of a, of a cigarette, um, and that metaphor of the uh, of the extra small garment that's uh, that Blunt's not even bothered to iron out. That metaphor's come so easy. It's just a flip in the skate park, and this image of the extra small garment is so right because a garment is. Like a, a, a vessel is something that holds. Whereas if Eden had written T-shirt, um, it would be just jar. It's like, what are we doing? Why are we thinking about a T-shirt? Um, but that that garment just it just it fits the slinky yet messy nature, not only of the writer's subject, which is going to be about the difficulty of pinning down what this album is actually about, um, but also of the artists themselves. Um, and so, you know, to me, that's just uh, that is absolutely um, superb as an opening. Yeah, I uh, man, there's so many things I want to talk about because I feel like you 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 kind of led into the two big points that I wanted to make about this piece that I love. The one thing that's interesting, and it's interesting that you compare Dean Blunt to Doom, um, and with that opening specifically, who it reminds me of more specifically is Jay Electronica very much with the, yeah. the, uh, the that was immediately what I thought of when I first started reading this piece was the like, you know, kind of uh, choppy little inklings of 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 uh, of music that was released. And then this extended period of time where you're expecting this big grandiose thing. And then Jay Electronica hits everyone with a written testimony, whatever, 10 years later, kind of like Dean Blunt's. I believe it was seven years later. And everyone was like, oh, what? this is what you give us? Are you kidding me? And it's like, oh, of course this is what you give us. That's what you do. There's no way you're going to give us what we want or what we're supposed to expect. And that's kind of the beauty in the thing. And you can kind of tell that uh, Tizard is is uh, kind of acknowledging that on some level. It's like whatever expectation I had 
of course, with the intention of who Dean Blunt is, he's not going to meet that expectation. And I actually should be appreciative that that is this artist because that's what I fell in love with about this artist. Um, and then you kind of get into, and this is the thing I love talking about on this podcast, and I have multiple times, when uh, a writer mimics the kind of feel of the artist that they're reviewing or talking about. Um, and funny enough, I think the last time I talked about that was in our Specialty Doom episode. So these worlds are kind of connecting really well um, with the kind of commemoration that I believe Craig Jenkins wrote that I talked about. Or, or maybe it was actually the piece that Brandon brought i'm not exactly sure but anyway um but kind of literally mimicking and it always feels a little bit subconscious like doom's rhyme pattern and i kind of compared and contrasted but i i really love this one specific line he deals in psychic terrain the way the mind interacts with and stakes out its own reality his lyrics are simple because words can only go so far really felt like and then i read the piece first and then listened to dean blunt's music and that line to me really felt in this weird way, exactly how I was taking in Dean Blunt's music, where it's this kind of controlled stream of consciousness ruminating with like little flutters of in-depth poetry. Um, and that kind of, especially listening to you even uh, with the tonality, read the intro, um, that sort of nonchalant feel sometimes that you evoke from Dean Blunt's music, which is kind of the beauty in it, definitely came through in Tizzer's writing. Um, so yeah, that those were the two really cool things to me that jumped out. Yeah, and I think it's uh, it's great when it's it's about establishing tone. Obviously, uh, like you know most 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 writing, um, that's what's what's where we are are, are aiming, um, and it's it's so much harder than it it's so much harder than it sounds. Um, so uh, when uh, when Tizard says sort of sums it up by saying um comparing it to black metal the the album that came before um eden writes there's far less formal fuckery it's a head state record all gully no peak with swells of intensity that then ebb away um i mean it's really very very daring to bring in uh, a um this kind of liquid um uh, metaphor um and 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 this image but at the same time as you say mickey it's it's so true to the the traveling sound of blunt um you know typically um uses these traveling drums um as in the drearily charming uh 100 from the first black metal album which um wonderfully um eden uh describes as a track like 100 which was road music for the A17, that's a big road crossing uh, London, blissed out indie with a current of hackney dread. Um, and, uh, you know, that sort of, that conversational tone um, that is able to take us into the um, paragraph that you read out where uh, he, he, he nails it by saying he deals in psychic terrain. And that's a huge idea to drop in a small music review um i mean it's one that it's one that that uh, that is you know it's the kind of thing that, that is commonly um ascribed um to blunt um but uh you know potentially this conf this conversational tone is taking us into this potential gnostic cul-de-sac 
Like, what do we do with that? Um, and what we're understanding is that, you know, you have to be there, which is what you're saying. You know, you have to be there in order to um, transcend it. Um, and I think uh, an interesting thing to throw back to you guys and sort of see what you think about this idea um, was that uh, Eden quotes um, an interview between Blunt and uh, David Keenan. Um, and if you've not read um, uh, any of Keenan's novels, um, you must read Memorial Device in terms of the most, uh, you know, visceral, hypnagogic um, ride into, into how music um, actually feels. Um, so quoting that, uh, Eden says, in that, in, in that same interview, that's with David Keenan, Blunt condemned, quote, the black appropriation of dead white tropes, which, given the sound of black metal, many took to be an example of Dean trolling. That's because... Um, when you listen to uh, when you listen to his uh, when you listen to his work, um, and in this new piece uh, too, um, where you've got that gritty, phlegmatic, half asleep, weed dehydrated voice, um, in this piece the attitude is 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 sour um, often, but the ominous strings, the lax beat, the scratchy acoustic guitar simmered with a steamy bass line um, recalls more kind of. 90s trip hop um, like Massive Attack and especially Faithless um, who were fantastic at, at weaving in um, indie, indie ballads and so what you end up with from Dean Blunt um, is a surprisingly easier listen than previous albums but that very sweetness um, is at times both seductive and disconcerting so what does what does he mean? What is he saying about black appropriation of dead white tropes? What's his position on it? Do we think? I mean, I think it's it's a more nuanced question than a, a one or two line answer can lead to. But I also he, he Eden talks a little bit about wild speculation in this piece, and I think that this is one of those moments where there's so much speculation. that one could do i'm i'm trying to think about how i want to articulate this um but but mickey talk about it and then i'll have a sentence that i feel like encompasses the sentiment i want to want to share i soma maybe you can go into it a little bit more honestly because i think i i was having trouble i think i literally even wrote in my thing can can you explain that to me because i'm not even sure i quite get it so this question of uh the fact that blunt condemned um, when talking to David Keenan, uh, the quote, black appropriation of dead white tropes, uh, that really interested me as somebody who uh, absolutely loves uh, cross-genre um, music. Um, and I think uh, maybe an interesting lens onto that um, is uh, a book on black Britishness by Danvir Singh Bra, um, which is all based, which is, which is using... Um, uh, blunt as uh, as a lens to inspect uh, black Britishness and Bra calls Blunt the most important artist working in Britain ignored precisely because he quote fundamentally does not care about Britain um, so it's just it, I think it's really hard this uh, this question kind of picking out like how serious is is Blunt about uh, what he's saying you know is he condemning the black appropriation of dead white tropes or is he condemning the idea that we're seeing it in that way um, but I just think that in the going back to the top of this uh, podcast when we were talking about um, identity and immigration and um, what belongs to whom 
um, and a, a world that is so quick to be uh, reductively identitarian, which I know is something that we totally resist um, at uh, certainly at the Demented Goddess. And I would say working with my editors at the Quietus is, is definitely not their thing either. Um, you know, just kind of jumping on woke for the sake of it. So it's just a fascinating. He's just a fascinating figure, um, and uh, I think you know this uh, the way that um, the the way that uh, Eden's writing moves between you know acknowledging that. So um, here he is talking about uh, uh, blunt sort of being aware that he's using strings a lot. Here we are, back on the guitar, sings Blunt on Semtex, while Vigil has the same midi strings that give the Redeemer its shoddy grandeur. Um, yeah, and equally, Eden doesn't particularly care. You know, he's just going for a description of, of what the sound is and, and, and how to experience it. And I think that's a fantastic uh, resistance, actually, to the simplification of category and identity. Absolutely. I think it's interesting that I have my wild speculation thought back. I, I think when we read pieces about artists we enjoy listening to, we become detectives in trying to understand what they meant, if it's food for thought to ask of us to think more critically or broadly or with nuance, or if it's quite literally telling us their stance on something. But I think Eden writes in the way that you want to listen to Blunt and at least that I want to listen to Blunt, and that is with the lens of, if I enjoy the music, can I live within myself to separate the problem of the art and the art, and is that separation real? And I think we talk about things like that quite a bit in some of our other episodes about the Black appropriation, the appropriation of Black culture in many, many ways, but Something that is true for the rest of the world is that there are cultures and communities and black communities in England and the rest of the world that have been broiled in this musical hub and are using different instruments, etc. And that's happening here too, right? It's happening around the world. So is it the black appropriation? I'm not, I'm not sure. It, appropriating white sounds it's a beautiful sentence to think about but it's it's interesting and and is music a place where that lives only because it's attached extremely closely to a community and a culture and a community that's been so long disenfranchised or is is music the place where the globalization of sound specifically through instrument and language is is okay i don't know yeah, I, th I think it's a, a really intriguing gray area. And I also think, um, I think Dean Blunt's kind of toying with, is he serious or is he not with, with the idea, with all of the kind of use of the instrumentation that you talked about is, um, I, I like what you said about it being kind of an empowering thing. Like it's his own reinterpretation of whatever that is. And it's like inherently his because of how he's doing it. Um, I think that, that that is what really strikes home about, about everything you said to me. Are we, are we ready to move on to the third one, you think? Yeah, let's talk about some vibe. <laughs> okay, cool.
so um, I actually wanted to some, uh, talk about, uh, which we haven't gotten into yet, there's a section about Dash Snow in your piece, which is a, a track from Dean Blunt's Black Metal 2. Uh, and Dash Snow connects to me really deeply because he uh, is the spoken voice on the intro uh, for Kendrick Lamar's The Heart Part 2, which I don't know if anyone's ever heard. But, uh, well, funny enough, uh, I, I read a New York Times piece that referred to Dash Snow as a downtown Baudelaire, uh, which is funny because of Tyler, the creator's new album. Uh, but what's interesting about, about that uh, intro is someone asks him in the interview, I believe the, the interview, his name is Daniel Joseph. What do you believe in? And he's like, shit, I don't know what the hell I believe in. Uh, and then he kind of ruminates on it and eventually answers that the only thing he really believes in is music. Uh, he's like, I, I, you know, I smoke whatever packs of cigarettes a day and I just have to listen to music all day. It has to ruminate in my head. I have to continue to keep listening to it to stay sane and, and believe almost in myself. Uh, and then Kendrick Lamar goes on to rap one of the most incredible and emotional verses I've literally ever heard in my life. And that's one of my favorite songs. But anyway, long story short, that <laughs> leads into the idea of um, music providing our sanity. And in the case of this piece, specifically uh, music and uh, Erica Campbell's record collection providing her home. Um, so I'm gonna keep it a buck. This is one of my favorite intro sentences out this year. Uh, it's just straight to the point and kind of very similar to Soma's in the like, we're, all right, we're in it. Uh, so she says, when I divorced my ex, he got the Mini Cooper and I got the majority of the vintage vinyl collection. I thought it was a fair trade. After all, there were four original pressings of Zeppelin records involved. I was just locked in immediately. This is a piece for the music nerds and music lovers, but on the depth of where if you say it aloud, it's not corny, which uh, includes everyone on this podcast. This is a personal essay for those of us who live it and unlike anything else I've heard us discuss on the podcast, but honestly one of my favorite types of writing. It's a piece set in a different style for a website leaning towards storytelling that includes apartment aesthetics, but Campbell cleverly throughout uses the music and vinyls that move her as the through line. The piece deep dives into uh, Erica Campbell's passage that culminates in the epiphany that the singular thing that represents the feeling of home most to her is her collection of irreplaceable vinyl. She says, listening to vinyl with its static and imperfections feels like an appropriate reaction to a world that has leaned into digital convenience while popularizing perfection, or at least the quest for something that may never truly exist. She later grabbed me with her pull of a National Geographic uh, article that talked about rituals for healing and held me with her example of a ritual being listening to her vinyl of Fleetwood Mac's rumors while being emotional singing the chain. So a, a quick detour before we open it up of why this got me looking like I was cutting onions while I was <laughs> uh, reading it. My mom loves rumors and introduced me to that album. Uh, the song she initially introduced me to Fleetwood Mac with was the chain eventually for her birthday one year i would buy her tickets to see fleetwood mac in baltimore where we're from 
And uh, I recently, pre-reading this, bought her a Rumors vinyl for Mother's Day that she could play on this new Studebaker record player me and my siblings bought for my father for his 60th birthday. So, very small world. Um, and the kind of question I wanted to pose to you both, uh, what moved you about the piece, similarly to me, uh, in relation to your own vinyl existence, if anything? Erica says... When we would sit without speaking, spinning El Camino by the black keys on vinyl, sipping Maker's Mark on ice, and conjuring up the feeling I can only refer to as home is quite literally how I live, except sometimes it's Bullet or Mezcal and it's Al Green, but that feeling of music establishing familiarity and nostalgia, but being mobile is a very, very real thing for me, having lived a few places and struggling with the idea of what home feels like to me, but it's wherever my soundscapes can be with me. And I think that there's something really magical and very New York village voice, 1990s-esque about this woman and her console in her post-divorce life in the East Village navigating gluten-free pizza and in, in the Black Keys. Erica, you should come over. We should have a drink. Joshima, you you talked about specifically the the kind of nostalgic feeling um, that is really exuded by Campbell in the piece. Um, and uh, funny enough, I think what that makes me think of is like the 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 craving for nostalgia uh, as a thing and nostalgia itself being uh, the epitome of the feeling of home now. And I wonder um, even off of that, if, if like the pandemic and the time that we're in uh, evokes the necessity for that feeling of nostalgia. And we, it's funny because we were talking about it beforehand, how uh, at least the, the pandemic for me kind of made me feel like I was reverting back to my four-year-old self before I kind of knew what was really going on and had any really sense of structure from like the education system. So, uh, I don't know, to relate this back to the piece, I guess, um, there's, there's like a, a little bit of the, the nostalgia of the rawness of, of hearing vinyl and feeling vinyl in your space that lets you tap into like the, the, the kind of or organic, upbringing of you as a human. I don't know if either of you connect to that. Of course, I think anything nostalgic, it's, at least for me, when I hear that word or I'm trying to explain that sentiment, all I'm saying is that I miss familiarity that didn't need to be contextualized. And that's why when we meet people or go places where they were around for something or experienced the same thing that we experienced, it's this feeling of, wow, you feel that same sentiment of familiarity, but I don't have to explain it to you because you were there. And that process feels less exhausting than trying to treat it like a preference that you have to somehow share with somebody and hope that they feel about it the way that you feel about it. So I really love that. And I loved, I think today we've done a little bit less of this than we usually do, but the podcast is genuinely about great music journalists that write about music and the way that they write about music. And I think that a lot of the time we're covering these pieces that are usually a little bit more 
leaning into hip-hop and what's happening with artists or innovation and this piece felt like a little slice of descriptiveness and someone really setting some type of stage for us where I was like I'm in her living room I can understand where those glasses are where the decanter is what it feels like. This feels like she lives somewhere where there might be a yellow-based light in the evening, not a white one. Um, So it's things like that that I really, really enjoyed. This was like a very nice piece to read with coffee and wish I was listening to a a record when I was working instead. I, I literally went back. After I read this, I literally went and listened to my favorite Black Keys song, and then I listened to The Chain. Um, and I think like definitely that that goes into her uh, writing the the kind of in between line of this piece, which is it's obviously uh, a piece written for a, a publication, an online publication called Apartment Therapy. So the imagery of the space and you get little pictures and glimpses of it, but then aligning that with this just the general feeling of the 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 records that she chose to kind of include and weave into the piece and that overall feeling it like um it's a cool piece for a site like this because it just shows the breadth of the possibility for music journalism to carry over into other spaces and be effective in in different ways aesthetically even and and add to the the space of writing that she's existing in over in apartment therapy I mean, soundscapes are our whole life, right? They're in everything. They're how we breathe. Um, And I think that I love pieces like this. I think she referenced National Geographic towards the end of the piece, if I'm not mistaken. But I think there's a a quote, a semblance of a sentence um, that said something along the lines of, people engage in habits or rituals to overcome their anxiety. And I believe the quote said something about it's an attempt to avoid negative outcomes and that for me was a good a good summation of the pandemic because it really did feel like for I'm gonna say eight months in New York that everyone just wanted to decrease the amount of negative outcomes and music for me was such a big part of that ritual or that process of maintaining some type of stability and knowing and knowing the feeling I would feel when I listen to records. I like the point that you make, Mickey, about um, the breadth that is possible within music writing. Um, and although this piece obviously is for a very particular site, so um, it's definitely uh, the, um, the stories of uh, travelling from apartment to apartment, Airbnb, Um, finding herself in New York, um, rubbing shoulders with some of the members of her favourite bands um, because the the person who she's sharing with is a a vegan uh, chef entrepreneur and everybody's in the kitchen eating sweet potato pizza. Um, I think it's a a really, it's always always an interesting question, like what makes a good personal essay in music? Um, There are these profound questions um, in terms of uh, how you direct yourself when you're writing. The question of who is the protagonist? Is it me? 
Um, is it the artists that I'm going to be writing about? Um, and to bring it back to um, what Eden Tizard does in the piece on Dean Blunt, um, it's just all there um, in in the tone of voice, and it's a it's a very it's a very short piece. Um, as, as I've said, it's, I, I'm I'm almost angry about how short it is, but that's a good thing for me um, because uh, I definitely um, save my anger for for good causes like wanting more 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 beauty in 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 art. Um, yeah, and as for nostalgia with this piece, it was a very interesting uh, question for me. Um, nostalgia itself, um, I believe, was uh, initially coined in something like the 18th century um, about sailors. Uh, I think I've got this right. But anyway, there's a story about nostalgia that is about sailors who um, had a morbid longing uh, to return home, to see solid ground um, being adrift at sea. Um, and in fact, uh, it was considered a, a disease, um, severe homesickness. Uh, was was considered a disease. Um, so it's kind of 17th, 18th century where it goes back to. And I've got to say that uh, I, we were talking about this before we got, we got into the podcast. Um, yeah, and uh, I, I have some of my, I have some of my vinyl here with me. Um, and uh, I was just talking about this piece by, uh, by Prince, um, who is, uh, I would describe... <laughs> I describe uh, Prince as my musical mother and Bowie as my musical father. So it goes really, really deep with me. Um, the the way that these artists have given me a uh, life philosophy uh, through their music of daring to break the boundaries of black and white, um, uh, male and female, in Bowie's case also sexuality. Um, so for me, music is really about a, a way of, of, of travelling. And in this piece, we have this sense of travelling. And I, I, I like that, um, that movement from place to place. Um, personally, I would have liked a, a little bit more about the actual records that are being played. Um, but that's just me asking for more, more, more. Um, and it's, you know, things get harder uh, when you start to bring in the quality of music as opposed to the, uh, the, 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 the color of a sofa. Um, so, yeah, but, and then I can, so then I thought, right, you know, what, what vinyl would I, would I share with you guys? Um, really kind of pushing back on the fact that I don't really like nostalgia. No, I don't like it. You know, I'm with Prince on the, on the, on the rear view mirror has broken off. What do I mean by that? Um, one of the most interesting lines in this essay uh, is towards the end when um, when she's talking about uh, people asking her where is she gonna where is she going to um, plant her flag next? You know when is she gonna finally settle down? Uh, another phrase that strikes horror into my heart, um, and she comes up with this lovely analogy of uh, quote listening to myself, and I think. You know, there's a there's a, a line of that quality of finding oneself through music um, in this piece um, that, if anything resonated with me, I think that was, you know, that 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 was the line through there. Um, so yeah, you just made me think about it differently. Almost, um, I was just thinking about it contextually, but the idea of listening to yourself as you listen to music and then her creating this whole 
kind of corner where she takes her headphones and listens to her vinyl player and the you know the vinyl player on some level and the music that she's choosing to take in in her kind of home space is really on some level and her collection all represents her listening to parts of herself through the music that she's listening to and i it's just funny like the the set of vinyl that i even have uh initially and it's i guess it's good i didn't even plan to but the, the first vinyl i ever bought was good kid mad city by kendrick lamar because i felt and you know he's he's just my favorite artist so it's it's just uh there was something about listening to him even initially with the heart part two which was the second track i ever listened to by kendrick that like woke up some kind of depth of my existence that i didn't know could be reached kind of through music and so that that represents that kind of listening to myself or finding out something about myself uh through music and so it makes sense that that was kind of the first vinyl so if i'm flexing any of my collection <laughs> uh that's that's definitely that was the first one and um i slightly shameless plug i'm now doing my radio show where i go back and and figure out what my favorite album was from each year i've been alive and that's kind of how i'm planning to extend my vinyl collection and so literally if anyone has a love deluxe shot a vinyl <laughs> i'm looking uh, and i'll pay good money uh <laughs> Um, but I can't, it's so hard to find like individual, not damaged ones. Cause they sell them in these like huge bundles that are a gajillion dollars and I'm not trying to do that. Um, but yeah, uh, there's something about like looking at, at, you know, your existence as a human through the music that you're listening to. And maybe that's like that weird kind of same impetus I had for doing the radio show and extending my collection. But Joshua, I'm definitely really intrigued to hear about your kind of connection to vinyl. If you got one. Yeah, um, I, I actually don't, I don't feel nostalgia has to be tied to having been in time and place, which is why I hang on to using familiarity to describe what I enjoy about the concept of nostalgia, because most of the things I feel familiarity to were well before I was alive, right? Um, and so last weekend on Juneteenth, I actually went to this first screening of Summer of Soul, Questlove's new film. Um, based on the Harlem Cultural Renaissance Festival that happened in Mount Morris Park. And you, I, there was like five generations of people embracing singing Gladys Knight with Gladys Knight. And there's feelings like that you could bottle and drink forever, but they're not exclusive to the generation that watched Gladys Knight rise to fame or the generation that consumed her after their grandparents passed. It's not... Hopefully my future children or people I can bring music to will consume Gladys Knight and feel some sense of being moved and transported and familiarity without having been in time and place. But my, you asked me about vinyls, didn't you? Let's see. Um, <laughs> I don't have nearly enough. I would like to have more, but I do deeply, deeply love my Otis Redding records, my Al Green records, that whole wave is kind of where I think I first fell in love with music and and that that's what's in the vinyl collection. But listeners, what is your take on nostalgia? Mickey, I think I think we have to wrap up today's episode. Yeah, I think that's that's a good note to end on. I'm always down to end on Otis Redding and Al Green for sure. Al Green is my favorite singer of all time too, and that's another vinyl I actually need to get. Is that Al Green is Love albums? That's my favorite project of his. Um, yeah. So yeah. Um, thanks for listening and shout Soma for her first episode. 
It's been amazing to have you. Um, uh, definitely leave, leave a comment on, on anywhere you can, uh, shout us out, spread the word. And, uh, Brandon always says this, um, if you are an article for a, uh, uh, an article, if, if you're you a writer are an for article. a smaller pub- <laughs> getting meta, if you're a writer for a very small, a smaller publication, uh, whose work we may have not seen, please feel free to send it to us. We love, uh, covering the range of writers from the biggest of publications to the smallest ones to the just starting out to the seasoned um it's all about what the writing makes us feel Um, what mickey wants to say is it's all about the sauce but he's refraining from another pun (laughs) exactly um but yeah thank you thank you so much for for listening and we'll, we'll we'll be back soon This episode of Essential Source featured Soma Ghosh, Mickey Hellerback, and Joshua Wadora of the Essential Source Creative Collective. The episode was edited by me, Charlie Taylor of the Fifth Film Podcast Network. Music for this show is fucked up by Barsty. Thanks to Gerald Breckers for the ability to use. This has been a Central Source Fifth Film Podcast Network production. Thanks to Barsty, Gerald Breckers, Central Source Fifth Film, and content covered in this episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source. Thank you.